through the Gospel of John. <clears throat> and we are in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on your table. And uh, this is one of those chapters where <clears throat> the theme that uh, John introduces in the prologue of light and darkness is repeated uh, at the end of the passage. So I just want you to uh, be aware of that. Keep your eyes open for that light and darkness theme. Okay, well last week we discovered that as pilgrims by the thousands flocked into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, a word got out that Jesus was arriving as well. And when he arrived, uh, uh, many of the pilgrims who were in the city flocked out to meet him because word had gotten out that he had healed Lazarus. He had raised Lazarus from the dead and this they began to suspect that he was the Messiah. And they just couldn't wait for him to overthrow the Roman government and set up the kingdom. So they flock out to Jesus. And we ended in uh, chapter 12 and verse 19 last week, where the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see <clears throat> that you're accomplishing nothing. We're not doing anything to stop him. Uh, look, the world has gone after him. Uh, that was a hyperbole. Uh, but what they're saying is we can't stop this guy He's getting, his movement is growing, and it's uh, got such a momentum that he cannot be stopped. So now we pick up in verse 20. It says, now there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast. Now, these are Gentiles. Uh, the word Greek is not really a good translation. These are Gentiles who are God-fearers. God-fearers are Gentiles who have embraced the Jewish religion or have acknowledged the Jewish God and come and worship with Jews. They're not Jewish converts. They have not been circumcised. They have not, they're not full-fledged Jews. They haven't abandoned their, uh, their Gentile roots. They're still Gentiles, but they're God-fearers. That means when there are feasts, Jewish feasts, they come and celebrate the Jewish feast. Now, they will come to the temple but they can only go into the court of the Gentiles. The Gentile had a court of the Gentiles, the court of the Jews, and the court of the women. If you were a Jewish man, you could go into the uh, you could go into the major court, the court of men. If you were a woman, you had to go into the second category called the court of the women. And if you were a God-fearing uh, Gentile, you could only go into the court of the Gentiles. So they have come to worship, it says, at the feast. Now look what they do. Verse 21. Then they came, these Gentiles, came to Philip, who was, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Well, here's part of the crowd that's trying to you know, touch Jesus. And notice it's the Gentiles. So when the Pharisees say the whole world's coming after him, uh, our first example of People other than Jews coming after him are these Greeks, these Gentiles. They come to Philip. Why did they come to Philip? Now, a lot of commentaries say they came to Philip because he had a Greek name. He had a Gentile-type name. And that's why they came. But, you know, the text doesn't say that. Does I think it's much more than that. When you look at the text, look how Philip's described in verse 21. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and they asked him, saying, Sir... We wish to see Jesus. It's more likely that these Gentiles are from that same region, maybe even the same town. 
Otherwise, why would the gospel writer John even put that in there? Why would he tell us that Philip's from Bethsaida of Galilee if it were, were not pertinent to this event? So probably these Gentiles are from that northern region up in Galilee, 80 miles away, which is predominantly a Gentile region. And Philip happens to live up in that region. And they find out that, hey, one of his disciples is from our neighborhood. So they, they go to him. So we're not sure, but that's a possibility. So look what Philip does. <clears throat> Philip came in verse 22 and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. So, Philip decides to consult with Andrew. Shows you he didn't know what to do about the request. So he talks to his friend Andrew, says, hey, what are we going to do? And they come to a decision, uh, let's go tell Jesus that there are some Gentiles that want to, to uh, meet with him. Uh, so then look what happens. But Jesus, you see that? But Jesus, uh, Jesus ignores the request, which is very interesting. And when we get to the end of this passage, we're going to see the Gentiles never get to meet Jesus. So Andrew and Philip say, Jesus, there's some Gentiles that want to meet you. And Jesus just ignores the request. And he goes into some sort of teaching. And look what he says in verse 23. But Jesus answered them, meaning Philip and Andrew, saying, The hour has come. That the Son of Man must be glorified. Uh, now, what in the world is going on here? Why does Jesus ignore the request? And what does he mean, the hour has come that the Son of Man must be glorified? Now, we've seen that phrase, the hour, before, haven't we, in John's Gospel? That the hour has not yet come, the hour has come. What did that phrase always have to do with in John's Gospel? The crucifixion, his death. Remember that? They couldn't kill him because what? His hour hadn't come. It always had to do with his death. So Jesus uses the same phrase, but notice he doesn't say death. What does he say? The hour has come that the Son of Man should be what? <clears throat> Glorified. And so what we think is that it's through his death that the glory of God shines through. God is revealed and his glory is revealed through the death of Jesus Christ. And some commentators believe that it's when the Gentiles, the Gentiles coming to Jesus sort of signals that it's now it's his time to die. He's not only going to die for the Jews, but he's going to die for Gentiles as well. So now Jesus goes into a parable in verse 24. Uh, and he's going to explain himself. You know, what does it mean the hour has come that the Son of Man must be glorified? Okay? Look what he says. Most assuredly I say to you, this is verse 24, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it what? Remains alone. It abides alone. So, he's going to give us an example of what it means that the Son of God must be glorified. And here's the example. Unless a grain of wheat dies and uh, falls into the ground, it remains alone. Okay? So, what I want you to imagine is that you're holding in your hand an apple. And you cut that apple in half, and you look at each half of the apple, and there are seeds. Maybe there's four or five seeds in each half of the apple. Okay. Now, I want you to take one of those seeds out, and I want you to put it right there on your table in front of you. Okay. Now, if that apple seed remains on that table 
it, it'll just stay there, won't it? It'll remain alone. Right? And if no one cleans off the table, which they probably don't during the week, you know, you come next week and what would you see? Your apple seed, it would still be there. It would remain. And if they, if you came, if you, you know, decided to go to another Sunday school class, which I know no one would do that, but, <coughs> and you come back five years later, no one cleaned the table off, what would be there? The apple seed, it would remain alone. But if you put the apple seed in the ground, what happens to the seed? It dies. So you put the seed in the ground, it dies, you put it on your table, and it remains alone, right? So look what it says in verse 24. But, notice in the middle of the verse, but if it dies, it does what? Produces what? Much fruit. Do you see that? Much fruit, because when you put the seed in the ground, guess what? It dies and then it multiplies. In fact, you put the seeds of your apple in the ground, you had 8 or 10 or 12 seeds, and you put those in the ground, you'll have 8 or 10 or 12 trees. And how many apples will you have on each tree? Hundreds. You'll have a whole harvest, you know, in time. Because the seed dies in the in, within a seed, there's, there's a germ of life. It's in that seed. But if you leave the seed on your table, the life is never released from the seed. See? But if you plant the seed and it dies, what's on the inside, that life, bursts forth and it's glorious. And you have a whole harvest. Apple harvest. Out of one apple... <laughs> And eight or ten seeds, because those each seed produces a tree, which has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and those apples each have seeds, and you put those in the ground, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And that's the glory, that's the life that's in the seed. But in order for that to shine forth, what must you do with the seed? Put it in the ground, it has to die. No death, no glory. So it is in Jesus' death that he is glorified. Does that make sense? That's his parable. So, that's called the parable of, that's a parable of the kingdom. And many rabbis in Jesus' day believed that that phrase, a grain of wheat, see that says, unless a grain of wheat falls, they saw this concept of a grain of wheat as a symbol. And this, it was a symbol of resurrection. They believed that when the kingdom of God was set up, set up on earth, People would all be raised from the dead, just like a grain of wheat produces life after it dies. And so that's the principle here. <clears throat> and it's not only a principle for Jesus, not only will he be glorified, it's a principle for us. Look at verse 25. He who loves his life will lose it. He who loves his life will lose it. He's telling the, his audience and his disciples, don't be afraid of death. Uh, don't try to hold on for life, dear life. You know, oftentimes we just try to hold on for dear life. Uh, but you know something? If you do that, you're going to end up losing your life. So look what he says at the end of verse 25. He who hates his life in this world, and he's talking about the worldly life, if you say this worldly life isn't that important, will keep it for what? Eternal life. You see that? So don't hold, what he's saying is this. This is a, just a King James way of saying, don't strive to hold on to temporal life. 
Don't trade temporal life for eternal life. Eternal life is the important thing. And in order for that life to be produced, guess what you have to do? Just like Jesus, you have to die. <laughs> See, so he's letting them know that, guess what? Not only am I going to die and be glorified in it, but you will die. And he's talking about being a martyr. You heard about martyrs this week? You heard about people who died for their faith? See, somebody said, forget who it was that said this, but that the blood of the martyrs is the life of the church. And it's through martyrdom that God actually brings many more into the kingdom because others put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so he's saying, don't hold on to temporal life. What you really must hold on to or want is eternal life. And he gives a command. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, let him what? Follow me. See that? Well, where's Jesus going in about three or four days? He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. So if you want to serve Jesus, guess what he's saying? You have to follow him. And what does that lead to? It leads to what? Death. And that's what he's saying there. And look what else he says in verse 26. And where I am... There my servants will be also. Well, Jesus is going into the kingdom. Where were we going to be going? We're going to be going into the kingdom. And then he also says in verse 26, If anyone serves me, him, my father, will what? Honor. So that's what he's calling about. He's calling for us to uh, not hold on to that which is temporal, that which is worldly, but to strive for that which is eternal. And you know, there are Christians all around the world right now that are having to make choices. Are they going to hold on to this life and deny Christ in the light of radical Islam? Or will they keep their faith in Christ and lose this life? But in losing this life, they gain eternal life. And that's a call each one of us may have to make. Now Jesus brings it back to himself in verse 27. Still with me? Okay, verse 27. He says this. Now my soul is troubled. I'm agonizing. Yeah, he doesn't want to die. Who wants to die? You know in the garden, he sweats tears of blood. He, he, he doesn't want to die. He says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass by me. He says, I'm agonizing in verse 27. And what shall I say in light of this agonizing? Watch this. What shall I say? Shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Is that what I'm going to say? <clears throat> but that's a choice we're all going to have to make one day. Father, save me from this hour? And look what he says. No, that's not what I'm going to say, even though I'm agonizing over this situation. Look what he says he'll say in verse 27, the end of verse 27. But for this purpose, look at this, for this purpose, meaning to die. I came to this hour. See, that's his purpose for existence. His purpose for existence is to die. <clears throat> now, you'll recall that when we were dealing with John right from the start, we said that one of the themes of John is the Passover. And that Jesus portrays himself as a Passover lamb. He's going to die on the Passover. John the Baptist, right in John 1.29, says, Behold, the what? Lamb of God, right? So, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Now, Passover celebrated the Exodus. When the Jews were in bondage to another 
tyrannical regime, Egypt, they're still in bondage, they're in bondage to the Roman regime in Jesus' day. And God was going to deliver them. And remember his solution to deliver them? Each household had to take what? A lamb. Kill the lamb. Wipe its blood on the doorpost. And when the angel of death came to claim lives of the firstborn, if it saw the blood, it would pass over that house. And that house would not experience death. They had said they would have life. But in order for them to have life, guess what had to happen first to the lamb? It had to die. Now, in order for us to have eternal life, in order for Jesus to get into the kingdom, and us to get into the kingdom, he has to die. So that's why he says at the end of verse 27, for this purpose I came to this hour. Does that make sense? And then look what he says. Father, verse 28, glorify your name through my death. It's going to be through his death that God is glorified. And then he says this. Now, notice that's if you have a red letter Bible, things start changing in verse 28, huh? Now you don't have red letters. Now, this is the Gospel writer John giving a little bit of his comments on what's happening. He says, And then a voice came from heaven, saying, I have been both glorified in it. That's in the past. I've been glorified. My name has been glorified in the past through Jesus' life, his obedience. Okay? And then he says this in verse 28. And I will... Glorify it again. I'll glorify my name again. That's in the future. I, will, I was glorified in it in the past, in what Jesus did in his life, and his ministry, and his miracles. And I will be glorified again in the future through his death and through his resurrection. But Jesus has to be obedient to this hour. And so that's a voice that comes from heaven. So John tells us when Jesus made this commitment, suddenly this voice came down from heaven. Remember another voice coming down from heaven another time in Jesus' life? And when he's baptized, he said, this is my beloved son. <clears throat> so, John tells us in verse 29 that there's a response from the, from the bystanders, people who are around Jesus. It says this, Therefore the people who stood by heard it. They heard the noise. <clears throat> they didn't discern what words were being said, but they heard something was happening. It was happening from up there. It was coming down from up there. The 29 says, they heard it, and they said, thunder. Did you hear that thunder? That's strange. Sun's out. Did you hear that thunder? What was that? This among them said, it thundered. That's a natural explanation. But others in verse 29 said, an angel spoken to him. That's a supernatural explanation. So, they have a response. They hear something, they have a natural explanation, and thunder, some give a supernatural explanation. They, they can't see where the voice is coming from. They hear something, but they can't discern the words. So they come up with their own explanation. And that's what people always do. They try to explain that which God has done, and they can't do it adequately. So, when we talk about the resurrection, Jesus was raised from the dead at first Easter Sunday, and guess what? People had all kinds of explanations. They stole his body, this happened, that happened. So uh, 
When they can't understand things, they just give you their own explanation. So now what we have is Jesus <coughs> responds. Look what he says in verse 30. And Jesus answered and he said, This voice didn't come because of me, but for your sakes. Uh, <coughs> in other words, uh, he's speaking to the crowd and he is saying, You know, you heard something when I made this commitment. And that was for your sake. See? Uh, because what did God say in verse uh, 28? The voice came and said, I glorified my name in the past, I'll glorify it in the future. That was a sound when Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. God responded and he said, that sound you just heard was God affirming my commitment. And uh, he didn't have to give me that assurance. I had it already. I don't have to have God speak from heaven. I can hear it in my inner ears and all this kind of stuff. So he said, this was for your benefit. The sound came. And then in verse 31, what he does, he, he links his death to judgment. Okay? Now watch how he does this. <clears throat> now is the judgment of this world. Now is the judgment of this world. Number one. Look what else it says in verse 31. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. There are two nows there. Now really there's three nows. The first now is just understood. Now is the time for Jesus to die. And here's the second now. And now when he dies, guess what? The world is being judged. Its fate is sealed. God has passed judgment on the world. In other words, the world has turned against God, they've turned against His Messiah, and God judges the world as guilty. <clears throat> the world would be those who are not His believers, and not His followers. Those who are not in His kingdom, but are part of the kingdom of this world. He said the world's judged, its fate has been sealed. And then he says this, not only is that judged, but in verse 31, the ruler of this world, not only the world, but the the power behind the world is cast out. Now, who is this ruler of the world? Yeah, it would be Satan. So he says, when I die, Satan's going to be cast out. Now, what in the world does that mean? Satan's still on the loose, isn't it? So if Jesus died and Satan was cast out, what's going on? Something's wrong here. Satan's still on the loose. Well, it's like a president who loses an election. Guess what? They voted the bum out. Right? On November the 8th. But he's going to be around until what? January. Yeah, because but he's going to be a lame duck. So he's been cast out, but guess what? He's still functioning, but he can't function with the power that he had before as the full president of the United States. His power is now limited. And he's no longer ruling everything. Now Jesus has taken the throne, hasn't he? He sits at the right hand of God and he says, all power and authority has been given to me over heaven and what? Earth. So we have a new ruler in front of him, Jesus Christ. He's been voted in, in a sense. And his vote has been given to him by God and Satan, in a sense, has been voted out. So this lame duck, Satan, has been judged as well and he's been cast out. Now look at verse 32. He says this, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this, signifying 
what death he would die. So now, for the first time, he reveals his, the kind of death he will die. And he's going to die a death that's called lifting up, and that's dying on a cross, where they lift, up the cro lift him up and put him on a cross, and there he's going to die. Uh, when he says, I will die through being lifted up or dying on the cross, this means he's going to die um, at the hands of Rome. The Jews couldn't crucify anybody. Uh, so Rome, when it executed people, it executed people through different ways. If you're a Roman citizen, you could have your head cut off. That was considered merciful. But if you were not a Roman citizen and you'd done something against society, they would crucify you. And you would agonize and hang on that cross, and it would be a deterrent to anybody who else happened to be walking by. They put those crosses right on the main roads of towns. And they would line you up, and then people would uh, walk by and see this. It would drive the fear of Roman to anybody. This is a way that they're going to stop the Jesus movement right in its tracks. When his followers see what's happened to their leader, that's going to end the Jesus movement. And Jesus is going to be put to death as a common criminal, as a political revolutionary. One who claims to be the king over the Jews. Self-proclaimed king. Not one appointed by Rome. Not a Herod that's been appointed by the Caesars. But a self-proclaimed king. Somebody who's trying to usurp Rome's power. And that's how he's going to die. He's going to die a criminal's death. He's going to die a, die a death of a political revolutionary. And he says, when he dies that way, look what he says is going to happen. He says, I will draw, in verse 32, all men, all peoples, means all kinds of people to myself. Obviously not everybody comes to Christ, but all kinds of people come to Christ. Jews, Gentiles, marginalized, women, you know, everybody, slave and free. He'll draw all kinds of people to himself. And this he said, verse 33, signifying what death he would draw. So in a sense, his death is like a magnet that draws people. In his death, he is glorified. And people see that, and it draws them to the Savior. <clears throat> now we have the response of the people again. Look at verse 34. Then the people answered him. Well, this is great. People answered him. Well, we heard from the law that the Messiah, that Christ, Remains forever. <clears throat> That's not what we understand. We don't understand the Messiah. About, we don't think the Messiah is supposed to die. We think that from the Old Testament, that when the Messiah comes, he's just going to walk in and he's going to conquer Rome and set up the kingdom of God. He remains forever. He never dies. Now, remember what Jesus said back in whatever verse it was. He said, unless a grain of Wheat falls into the ground, verse 24, and it dies. If it doesn't, if you don't do that, guess what? It remains alone. And that's what they thought. They thought the Messiah wasn't going to die. He was just going to come in, conquer Rome, and sit on God's throne and be the head honcho, in a sense. That's theological language for being <laughs> Messiah king. <laughs> so, so they saw Jesus as a nationalistic Messiah. One who's going to free a nation, sort of like Moses. Okay? So look at the end of verse 34. So they said, so how can you say, this is what we believe, Messiah doesn't die, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? 
Now notice there's a challenge there. Do you see that? Look, first, the beginning of verse 34. We have heard, middle of verse 34, you say, say, we have heard, in the Old Testament, we have God's word on it, at least the way they interpret it, that Messiah will live forever, never die. You say the Son of Man must be lifted up. So uh, something doesn't jive. Somebody's theology is wrong. Either we're right or you're right. And guess who they think is right? <laughs> they think they're right. So you both can't be right. So then for end of verse 34 it says, by the way, who is the Son of Man? You see that? You say the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now we have a question for you. Who's the Son of Man? See, that's not language that the Jews ever used for the Messiah, Son of Man. They always used Christ, Messiah, Anointed One, all these different words for the Messiah, but they never used the phrase Son of Man. Son of Man is what we call Jesus' self-designation. When Jesus wanted to identify himself, he always identified himself as Son of Man, which comes right out of Daniel chapter 7. And uh, they didn't relate that to the Messiah. And so they're saying, who is the Son of Man thing? What are you talking about? So they're starting to think that Jesus is a little off here. What kind of Messiah is the Son of Man? One who died. That doesn't make sense. So Jesus answers them in verse 35. And here's where we have that light and darkness <clears throat> motif that's introduced to the passage. Jesus said, A little while longer, the light is with you. Now we know from chapter 1, who's the light? Jesus is the light. He's the light that's come into the world and he, this light is the life of men. It's the light who gives life to men. Metaphor referring to Jesus. Now, if he says, in a little while, a little while longer the light will be with you, what does that imply? There's going to be a time when the light's not going to be with you, right? Okay. And he's referring, of course, to his death there. So, time is short. So, if you want to believe on Jesus, who's the light, you know, you only have a short amount of period to do that. The light's only going to be with you so long. And then it says in verse 35, or Jesus says this in verse 35, he says, walk while you have the light. Otherwise, darkness will overtake you. So, this is an admonition. You need to take advantage of the situation while you have time before it's too late because once the light is removed and you know then you're in darkness and all you can do is grope you know so if you don't trust Christ now the chances are is that the darkness is just going to swallow you up and it's going to gobble you up and it's going to be too late for you so that's what he's saying you need to come to Christ while there's time and then he says this he who walks in darkness is right at the end of verse 35 does not know where he's going. That's pretty good, isn't it? You walk in darkness, you don't know where you're going, right? I think that's a truism. And uh, so if they reject Christ, then guess what? They're lost. They won't know where they're going. So the implication is you need to come to the light while you can. You need to come to Christ while you can. Look at verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light. Just another way of saying, believe in Jesus. Okay? <clears throat> believe in Jesus. 
Why? While you have the light, believe in the light. Now look at the purpose statement. Here's why you're to believe in the light. That you may become the sons of light. That you may become God's children. God is light and in him there's no what? Darkness at all. Believe in Jesus. That you may become God's children while there is still time. It's possible to escape the judgment. Because the world's judged when Jesus dies. And you're going to be judged with it. It'll be too late. You'll be in darkness. Or, come to light, believe in Jesus now, that you might believe, become the children of God. These things, verse 36 says, Jesus spoke. And then guess what he did? He departed, and he was hidden from them. The Gentiles never get to meet Jesus which is sort of interesting, how this passage opened up. <clears throat> now, just for the sake of concluding, how about the rest of the people? Jesus said you need to come to the light while there's light. You need to believe while there's time. If you don't, you'll be swallowed up in darkness. It'll be too late. What? How did the crowd respond? Well, next week we're going to pick up in verse 37, and look what it says. But although he had done many signs before them, they what? Did not believe. And then it goes on, verse 40 says, he's blinded the eyes and he's hardened the hearts of people. And so no, they go beyond the point of no return and they don't believe on him, they reject him. They crucify him thinking they're going to get rid of him, but it's in that act that God's glorified and that eternal life is produced. That's what we'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you for for your word. We thank you for a word that gives us comfort. We thank you for a word that tells us how we can have eternal life. We thank you, Lord, for the death of Christ and the resurrection that assures we'll be in the kingdom. Help us, Lord, to take this admonition to heart. If there's anybody here who's not come to the light, not believed on Jesus, they've been wavering, Lord, may they come now while the revelation of the gospel, the light of the gospel has been preached. May they put their faith in Christ and receive eternal life. In his name we pray. Amen.